Welcome to Piecemeal, a podcast hosted by the Emily Program, where we put it all together for you. Piecemeal discusses topics related to eating disorders, body image issues, and how society may contribute to distorted thinking. Please keep in mind that we may discuss difficult topics and that we ask that you use your own discretion when listening and that you speak with a therapist as needed. I'm your host, Jillian Lambert. Joining us today is the Executive Director of Rock Recovery, Christy Dondero Betway, to share her personal and professional interest in eating disorder recovery and support. I'm so excited to have Christy on with us today. I've been following her work for quite a while, so I'm excited to share it with you. Let me tell you a little bit about her. Christy came on as Rock Recovery's first staff member in April 2013, after serving as a faithful volunteer for three years. Having gone through recovery herself, Christy understands the depth of support needed to recover and is passionate about spreading the message that complete freedom from an eating disorder is possible. Absolutely. She shared a recovery story with organizations and media outlets across the nation. Christy lives with her husband, Ryan, in Washington, D.C., where they try to soak in all of the food and culture that the city has to offer. Thanks so much for being here with with us today, Christy. I'm so excited. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is going to be really fun. Awesome. So we're excited to hear more about Rock Recovery and its incredible work, which is so awesome. But first, let's give our listeners a chance to get to know you. Uh, We know there's a personal eating disorder story that underlies your passion, uh, like many of us in the field. Uh, underlies your passion and your professional work. So can you share a little bit of that experience with us? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I always say with my colleagues in the field who are clinicians, I don't have the fancy letters. I feel a little left out sometimes, but I do have a story and everyone's story is unique and different, but there is something beautiful about the lived experience. So yeah, I'd love to share a little bit more. So my struggle with food started pretty early on in my childhood. I think my eating disorder really took root around 13, but I can really also see different patterns that started even earlier. I moved against my will from Pennsylvania to Texas when I was eight years old. And I'll forever remember when my parents sat my sister and I down to tell us we were moving. We thought like, oh, what are they going to tell us? What's the big news? Are we getting a puppy? Are we going to Disney World? And they're like, we're moving to Texas. And I was like, well, that doesn't seem like something I want to do with my life. And I didn't even know it was an option, right? And, you know, it's it's like a, it's a funny story and also a sad story. It gives me a lot of compassion for my little self because I just didn't know how to handle the uncertainty, the feeling out of control, all those things. So I, I really turned to food for comfort early on because that was the only tool that I had or that I knew. That carried on into my, you know, young adulthood and even my teenage years. I was became a ballerina and got really serious about it as a teenager. So I sort of had this competing idea that food was my only friend and it was the enemy because to be a ballerina, you had to look a certain way. So there was just this push and pull all throughout you know, my, my high school years. And eventually that really did kind of spiral into more of an eating disorder. I, it all started what I thought was super harmless as a diet, right, which happens for so many of us. And then I went on this diet, I lost more weight, got all these compliments, and I just sort of decided, oh, this is what makes me valuable. This is what makes me worthy. This is what I need to do to be okay. What could go wrong, right? So got into the super disordered pattern with weight loss and with food and with, you know, feeling out of control with restricting and binging and various episodes in between. And that really followed me throughout college as well. And then when I graduated college was definitely sort of the lowest point in my own struggle. A friend of mine passed away from cancer and that Oh man, at the age of 22, that was the first time life got real. And I felt even more out of control, started really struggling with anxiety attacks. My my food behaviors got super ingrained and even deeper than they had been for the last 10 years. And it was really, really a tough time. And, you know, my recovery story is very unique. Uh, I actually started recovery because I met a cute boy at a bar. 
who asked me to go to church. So, you know, like North Carolina stories might continue. I'd gone to college in North Carolina and stayed there after school. And there was this church that I went to and they were running this program called New ID. And the whole premise of New ID is that complete freedom from an eating disorder is possible. And I sat in this lovely church with these lovely British people. It was a church planted from London of all places and heard this woman share her story of recovery. And in my little disordered mind, I remember thinking, I bet if I go to this course, I'll figure out how to lose more weight. Like what a great idea, right? And so I like to joke that God tricked me twice, um, once with the cute boy, once with my promise of weight loss in my head. But I went to this course and very quickly realized, wow, I actually have an eating disorder, not just I can't keep my willpower, not just I struggle like every other woman in the world or lots of people of all genders in the world struggle, but wow, I actually have a diagnosable eating disorder. I had no idea. I had no idea. So I started recovery from there. Breaking the isolation and joining that group was a huge part for me in finding recovery, just sort of voicing what I'd always thought, you know, no one else in the world thinks this way or these are the horrible thoughts that only I need to know about and breaking isolation, getting help, getting a treatment team. I did all outpatient treatment for my recovery, which included a dietitian and a therapist and lots of tears and fights over pastries and all kinds of things with my dietitian. But in the end, it worked out great. And, uh, you know, I can say that I've been fully recovered now for almost 15 years. And after having struggled for 10 years, that's just such a gift. And there's such redemption in the being fully recovered that I think a lot of people who never had an eating disorder still have some captivity around food or body image and something about having to dig real deep and go through the process of recovery just made it such this beautiful experience of freedom that was hard earned and horrible and wonderful. So you'd always give that disclaimer, right? It's not buddy butterflies and roses and all the things, but it's worth it. Right. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. There are a few butterflies. I didn't need, I didn't see that many butterflies on my journey. Of recovery. Unicorns? Yeah, yeah. Unicorns, but, but uh, certainly definitely was worth it. So, so many things struck me as you were talking, I, you know, I laughed as a, as a dietitian, of course, I laughed about the fighting with your dietitian because I, I have had those fights with clients and have been on the receiving end of the, all of the things that are wrong with the ridiculous ideas I'm suggesting about normal eating. So, and as somebody recovered from an eating disorder too, I was on the other end of those fights with my dietitian feeling equally enraged, you know, by the ridiculous nature of the pastry. So I'm with you there. <laughs> I think that the breaking isolation concept is so critical, right? That people often feel like I am the only person in the world that feels like this. How would anybody possibly understand that? And it's, it's part of the illness, right? That's so isolating and our brain sort of gets so focused on what's in front of us that we, we just can't possibly imagine outside of that. So those aspects of your recovery really stood out for me among many. I, I love your I love your joke about God tricking you twice. Very clever. I mean you you took a little bit more more convincing perhaps. You know, that's all right. So it's a really tall task of recovery for you know for anybody looking to improve their relationship with food and recover from an eating disorder. And just generally being in this culture, because we have this culture of so many diet ideas. They're everywhere, right? The, you know, that sort of diet culture just pervades our, our existence. And really being able to identify and challenge those concepts and myths and junk out there is a big part of recovery. How has recovery allowed you to do that? Um, how has your view of health kind of transformed as a result of that? 
Yeah, I mean, nothing makes me angrier than diet culture, I think. My husband the other day was like, I wish you got angrier at me during our fights. And he's like, you really only get angry about diet culture. And I was like, well, do you really want me to get angrier? But, you know, it's so true. I, I just, I feel... I feel really angry at diet culture because it keeps us captive and it's such a lie. And so one thing that really helped me in recovery and even now is just, just because you think something doesn't mean it's true. And I think that's true too, just because you read something, just because some quote unquote expert who really isn't an expert, but says they are, says something about weight loss or diet culture, whatever, doesn't mean it's true. And so really starting to criticize and think critically about the messages that were being handed to me was a huge part of recovery and it's a huge part of staying healthy now just because lots of things can sneak into our thinking we don't realize if we don't question them and the culture does kind of sweep you up sometimes right and I'm more abnormal when my friends get together and I'm like don't talk about diets don't talk about this like you look great don't I don't care about a number I don't care like stop just stop it like I don't want to waste my time talking about those things let's talk about things that are real so the culture can really have momentum and it's hard to sort of be the change and push against that. But really just thinking through what do I believe? What do I value? And when I went through recovery, that was a huge part of it. I was putting so much time and energy into how I looked in these numbers and these things, but I really valued my friends, my family, um, being kind to one another, joy. Like there were so many other things that I valued more, but they weren't getting my attention and energy because diet culture took it all away. It can be so loud and intrusive, the, yes. the sort of diet culture messaging. And it's, I, I think it's part of the, you know, I, I love the neurobiology literature that's emerging about eating disorders. And I think as we think about that, you know, that sort of like, I, I call it the high def living experience, like the, the attentive to detail, like people with eating disorders can be so attentive to detail. So they hear every diet culture message and internalize them and think about them. And to your point of just because you think something doesn't mean it's true. I love that. So as you were thinking through all these more positive, focused on, on the values that you are really supportive in your life, instead of the, the mess the diet culture is peddling us, what point in your recovery were you ready to step into the professional space with, around eating disorders? You know, people with eating disorder experience often ask, uh, you know, when can I work in this field? How long do I have to wait until I can work in the field? When is it safe? When am I ready? When is the field ready for me? How did you know that you were sort of, quote unquote, recovered enough to join the professional space? It's such a good question. And I'm a very impatient person. So I wanted to be ready before I probably was in a lot of ways, you know, and I kind of started to dip my toe in it. So one thing that I really do believe in is service and how, you know, giving back and serving others paying it forward is a huge part of the recovery process. So I was able with the new ID course that I mentioned that I went through at that church. It's actually a program that Rock Recovery runs now. We now own the course, which is cool, very full circle. And um, I got to volunteer with the woman who founded it initially. So I was probably about a year-ish into recovery-ish, right? Because there's that, you know, the body image took a while for me at the end to totally go away. My behavior, I'd been symptom-free and behavior-free, but I wasn't free-free quite yet. But I was doing pretty well. And so I got to help her and kind of be a little helper at this course and be with people, pray with people, help lead a discussion group type thing. But I didn't do any leadership on my own. It was all very supportive. But that really helped me to kind of see how far I had come to take stock on how far I'd come in a supervised, healthy, you know, boundaried way with someone who knew more than I did and could kind of help me along the way. And then after that, I, I did get very passionate about giving back just because, you know, my family, um, parents are kind of fancy. They're very lovely. And they put money into my account every week for my treatment. You know, we never really talked about it at first. We talk about it now. They're lovely. They're two of my biggest fans. But 
they, they put the money in my account. I paid for my treatment and that's what made it possible for me. And after a while, I kind of realized, wait a second, like not everyone has these lovely fancy parents who can put money into their account every week. Like what are they doing? And so that was maybe a year or two after I had found symptom-free again recovery. And I started to do some research for a business plan to see like, well, what are people doing about this? What nonprofits exist? I was working at Habitat for Humanity at the time. So I had a very nonprofit brain going on. And so there was sort of a process of research and reflecting and discerning. And then around that time, I started to realize, you know, I do really feel stable. Recovery kind of sneaks up on you, just like sometimes an eating disorder sneaks up on you. You maybe didn't mean to develop one, but small steps, small things, small choices, suddenly we're somewhere we never meant to be. Recovery is kind of like that, you know, it's, we, we, we choose it, it's intentional, so it's different, but there, it does kind of sneak up on you in a good way sometimes. And so there was a, a season where I realized, wow, I haven't counted calories in weeks or months or that kind of kept going. And then I thought, oh, maybe I am ready to be with people. And then practically, I think once I could be around people who were struggling and not compare myself to them, either body check, compare my story, or feel like oh, I need to kind of compare or do something or control. That was when I realized, okay, I think I'm really steady and, and able and ready. But definitely some years, I think, helped in those early seasons. Yeah, you kind of have to go through some of the, you know, there's the tough things that life brings us, right? And and use all those good coping skills you developed through, you know, throughout recovery to really apply them to regular living. And how do you do that without having needing sort of behaviors or even the thoughts and, you know, those intrusive thoughts are kicked back in. How do you find new ways to do it? So it's a, it's really the, the wings to fly part of recovery is really practicing that. And I love your your concept of it sort of sneaking up on you. That's so true, right? You can go for a while without really thinking about it and then realize like, oh, wow, I couldn't come here for a long time or I couldn't eat this thing or I couldn't go to that store or I couldn't talk to that person or I couldn't watch that movie without thinking these thoughts or whatever it is that it's just this little glimmer of a moment that you're like, hey, maybe, maybe I'm doing okay. That's fantastic. Yeah, and that's, I think, the whole idea of celebrating little victories and taking stock along the way. I mean, the personality types, right, that often struggle with disordered eating can be a little hard on ourselves. And so it was very hard for me to not like, demand perfection and get better in these amount of weeks. Like, it's going to be great. And of course, that's not how it worked. But it's good to take stock and kind of celebrate the little victories. Absolutely. I think it's, I think that's super important, right? You recognize that you are grateful for it. It's this little bright light in that day and then you move on and there's another one and celebrating that because it's, it's so important that recovery continues to need gratitude and a little bit of attention, right? That we, because really at its core recovery is taking, taking care of ourselves in a way that makes us able to be our, our true selves, right? And so if we're not able to do that, things are going to get out of, out of balance for us. So really bringing in that gratitude regularly, I think is super important. Yeah, absolutely. So now you're executive director of Rock Recovery, which is super cool. So tell us about Rock, tell us about its mission, the activities, uh, and of course the, the individuals and the families that it serves. Tell us all about it. Uh, I'd love to. I always joke, I pity the person, well, when we used to take plane rides, who asked me on a plane what I do for a living, because I'm like, well, 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 how much time do we have? Um, so Rock Recovery is amazing. I like, like you mentioned in my bio, I volunteered for a number of years before I came on staff. And it really is just a blessing to get to do this work. And the best part is, you know, we get to see the stories of redemption for our clients. Like you just get to see people come back to life and just really come back to full life and figure out who they are, maybe for the first time ever. And it's 
just amazing to support people along that process. So Rock Recovery is a nonprofit. We're based in Washington, D.C., and we uniquely combine clinical care and community support to help people fully heal. So the main bulk of what we do is outpatient, transitional-ish clinical recovery programs led by therapists and dietitians that are either meal support, body image therapy, different therapeutic groups that really help bridge that gap for people, either coming from outpatient care and they need a little bit of a boost beyond just individual work, or people coming back from a higher level of care who are coming back home and need some help taking the training wheels off and they just need that community to hold them. So it's great because it brings clinical and peer support and it's all sliding scale. Everything we do is sliding scale because we never want cost to be a barrier for anybody. So, and right now we serve clients with our clinical programs in DC, Maryland, Virginia, and a new program in California we just launched. And then the other programs we do are community empowerment. So we talk a lot, you know, kind of like I was tricked into recovery. We want to kind of trick other people into recovery. Why not, right? So we do lots of community outreach and events. We go to health fairs. We speak at schools or universities or churches or other faith communities and just sort of all share my story. We do different educational events to get people thinking. We even do like a 5K fun run or walk where we've gotten a lot of clients who come for that. And then they talk to us afterwards and they're like, hey, I think I want to learn more about your program. So it's really fun to get to just meet people where they are in the community and help them take that next step toward recovery. And then we also recently, because, you know, COVID redemption, now offer all these things virtually. And we also started doing online virtual support groups for people that are available to anybody, anywhere, because they're led by lay people like myself. We don't have the fancy letters, but they have a story. And so we get to do some really neat support groups and some chaplaincy and faith support as well for people who want to integrate that into recovery. That's so awesome. This is such an amazing array of services. And, and the, I, I imagine you've seen the same thing that, that so many of us in the eating disorder world have during COVID, this increased demand for services from yes. all over the place, right? How have you, have you seen that, which I'm guessing you have, and how have you been able to support that growing need? Yes, well, it was definitely a maladaptive coping skill of mine. We got really busy when COVID hit. I was like, great, I'll throw myself into my work. What could go wrong? This is a great way to cope with all the uncertainty. But those first two months, we had a 420% increase in inquiries from people reaching out for our services. I mean, we're a staff of three, you guys. Like That was a lot. That was a lot. And we now have more contract clinicians and people that we work with. We're hoping to grow. Don't get me wrong. But Ooh, it was a lot. So we went from when COVID hit, I think we were running three weekly programs and we're now offering three more weekly, so six weekly and one monthly. So we basically doubled our services since COVID hit, which was amazing because we had our annual fundraising benefit dinner on February 29th and raised so much money. And that was so great because I was like, oh, we actually have some seed funding for these programs because ooh, we hadn't had that be tough. So that was amazing. So we have been very busy and very popular. And it's been awesome because I'm sure you guys have seen this too, but people are reaching out for help who either were maybe doing okay before COVID, but just dipped enough to really need support. And the barriers are removed with geography when we can do things clinically. So we're serving people across states now instead of those those who can make it to our office in DC, which like 10 miles can feel like, you know, 10 states away. So that's been really neat to remove some of those geographical barriers and help more people. And I think we'll do virtual programs forever now. We'll go back to in-person when it's safe and when we can, but it's exciting to think, you know, one day we want to have a rock in every state and every major city across the nation. So stay tuned. But it's really fun to think about how virtual can help us help more people and remove those barriers. 
Yeah, absolutely. I love the little goal. Just the like every state, every large city. It's just you know, you know next year, you know, yeah, yeah, let's yeah. do it. Come on, what could go wrong? <laughs> Stay tuned. That's fantastic. I think it it's true that there's this uh, in so many ways there's this huge need for care in, in multiple kind of pockets of the recovery community. People who were just like you said doing pretty well and. COVID introduced all this uncertainty and isolation and eating disorders flourished in that. And then there, you know, we're thinking a lot about the people who are experiencing isolation and loss and incredible life change and, and change in relationship with food and body during the pandemic in ways that they may never have. And so we're wondering, you know, what happens next? I, I fear based on what we know from the literature about isolation and change in your relationship with food and that sort of disruption in people's lives that we're about to see even more that this you know beginning of of this is just the beginning of the rush or the beginning of this increased need for service and uh, that's it's a little daunting to think about that yeah well, and I think a lot of it is, right, our communities that we used to have, a lot of our clients said oh, they used to eat lunch with their coworker. They used to have lunch on Sundays after church. They used to go to family dinner or whatever. Like there was this built-in community that helped us. And one of our programs, we call it Breaking Bread because, you know, we like to break bread. And it's an online virtual meal support. And it's been amazing because even virtually people do connect well. You know, it's a little funny to like lift your meal up to the screen, but hey, it works. And people are still able to break bread together, even if it's virtual. So I think we have to just get more creative about building community for people, even in a virtual setting with Zoom fatigue and all the things. And, you know, in person's better, but virtual is pretty darn great. So just thinking through though that communal aspect like we talk a lot about how we help people heal and break these barriers so they can return to their tables and break bread with their loved ones because that's such a joy in life right so got to figure out how to help people sort of have that community absolutely yeah i think i think you're right that the this sort of virtual and in person that's the the way of the future because there are people who just won't be able to get to a a, a brick and mortar opportunity right for lots of reasons uh, and even if one of them is is distance, even if they have access to other things, but the distance says, I can't do that every week. And now they can just walk to their computer and have access to that is such an amazing thing. Uh, and I, I think you're right. We've, you know, we've certainly learned a lot. Who knew you could actually eat a meal in front of a camera and hold it up? We do that all, all day long across hundreds of people at the family program, right? Here's my meal and here's what I'm having. It's really allowed us to be uh, adaptive and, and flexible, I think, in some new ways. Yeah. So it's certainly, you know, I think, well, it's allowed us to be, you know, enormous amounts of flexibility and creativity have come out of 2020. It's challenged our ability to make plans. And, you know, I know you a bit. We're both planners. We like the planning. It makes us feel good to plan. It's also emphasized, I think, the importance of hope. And, you know, certainly, as you were saying, community. But hope is, you know, I think never more important than now. So what, what hopes do you have for the eating disorder community in our, in our post-pandemic world? That's such a good question. And I mean, it is so hard because I think you're right. I've attached hope to plans because it makes it feel more tangible, but hope isn't always a tangible thing. Although I really do think planning might be my love language. I don't know if that's an option, but oh man, it really might be. So there's something really beautiful about that. But I mean, we can still hope for what we can't expect or see and still really believe in more for the future. So when, when this hit, Rock was about to launch our five-year vision plan on, I think we were going to launch it like March 20th on our, on our birthday. 
March 20th, five revision plan. We're working on this thing for two years, two years. And then that thing is gone. I mean, it's gone. And there was a real mourning process on my side for like letting go of that. Cause I was like, maybe we can make it a one-year plan, maybe a six month plan. Maybe I know what I'm doing tomorrow. I don't know. So it's really kind of ebbed and flowed, but it's made me think differently. What is our hope? What is my hope for rock recovery? And what is my hope for the field and for the future? And collaboration, I mean, it's such a warm, fuzzy kind of nebulous thing to say but the thing that I've really seen is people coming together a bit more so I would love for us as a field to figure out how to collaborate it does take a village you know I mean we've seen clients do amazing work in our program outpatient but a lot of people need to go to a higher level of care and I think we can do a better job serving people as they step up and step down and just really coming together and wrapping around people so no one falls through the cracks so I just think better collaboration and better communication maybe along the way and being creative I mean one thing that's really cool about the virtual programs being in someone's house, and one of my friends mentioned this to me, you know, sometimes it's great to go to a place and have a safe place. Like you walk in the office and you're like, okay, I'm safe here. I got, I know the people, it's warm, it's inviting, it's all these things, but we're helping people reclaim their home space as a safe space, right? And yeah, they might have to cry over their pastry in their kitchen by themselves, but they're reclaiming their table, they're reclaiming their space. And so I just kind of want to see us help people more creatively reclaim their lives and their spaces. And I think this virtual piece really will change things for us to help with the relapse rate, to help with the isolation. Because you guys know, I mean, those two things are so critical to overcome for full and lasting recovery. Absolutely. I think that's a, it's an incredible point. All of this virtual work has also allowed, in some ways, a, a new, maybe a little bit different level of vulnerability that we're seeing people in their spaces, whether they're really interested in having us in their spaces or not, right? I'm, I'm in a, in a Zoom conversation, everybody gets to see my home office, you know, you might see that somebody's porch or living room or tiny corner of their bedroom or wherever they are, that we're letting people in in ways that are really pretty incredible. And given the isolation, again, like we talked about of eating disorders, even the letting somebody into your home through Zoom or through a, a, some other electronic portal is really powerful. And I, I hope that we as a community can, can think about ways to expand on that even more, right? We, we've learned just like you, how quickly things can change and how creative we can be under that change. And so I, I'm optimistic that we're gonna keep doing that. And sort of a lot of the things that we thought were maybe never possible, turns out they are, it turns out we can do them. And I am totally with you. I think we need a petition for planning to be the sixth love language. I'm there. I am so there. Uh, let's do let's it. Let's totally do that. So that's a good takeaway right, for anybody else <laughs> who wants to join us. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. You know, and I'm also hoping beyond the eating disorder field too, I'm hoping culturally people, people are starting to understand, oh, mental health. Wow. That's really a thing we need to focus on and talk about. There's COVID has sort of leveled the playing field. Like we're all falling apart, you know, and, 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 and there's also beauty too. And there is redemption, but I don't know. I, there's different opinions about, you know, the capital T trauma and little T trauma, but I almost feel like with COVID there's like capital G grief and little G grief too. Like there's just something that like collectively we're all grieving. We all are experiencing trauma and we all are experiencing. And some people of course might have more intense experiences than others and actually have different sorts of loss that we could categorize differently, but still like there's this collective thing we're going through. And I think people are finally realizing that we can talk about it. And my hope is that we just sort of remove the stigma of mental health conditions generally, because like there's no shame in struggling. There's such resilience in this population. I mean, the, the resilience that our clients have, that we have, I feel like is such a gift and a blessing, but it takes healing first. And hopefully we can collectively heal to find that together. 
Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's true. I, I've been fascinated with the telehealth. Uh, this is an aside, but a related aside, I've been fascinated with the telehealth statistics. You know, we've seen all of these telehealth visits and healthcare just skyrocket, and such a big percentage of them are mental health. And so it really has, I think you're right, highlighted like, oh, wow, mental health, important. We should attend to that. And it, I think it'll lead us together closer as, as humans because we have such a shared experience. It's, you know, nobody's been unimpacted by what we've gone through collectively. And so I think it will, in one way, it will bring up a lot more need and hopefully uh, a lot more openness to, uh, to talking about mental health issues and connectivity and getting services and all of the things that we think about all, all day long, right? I, I'm right there hoping for that with you. There's definitely some positives to come out of all of this, all of this grief and loss. And I yeah. hope that we can harness those. Absolutely. And to your point, do it together because we can certainly get more done together than we can alone. Did you come up with a new five-year plan? Or are you still on the like, let's see what happens next week? <laughs> Maybe we're on to a quarter plan. We have the next three months planned out. Our hope for next year is that we do expand to at least two new states. So, you know, not quite 50 yet. And maybe we'll be able to do more depending on how funding and all the things that have to come in place. But the cool thing is, well, it's not cool. My whole plan changed, you guys. It's not cool. And I refuse to say it's cool. But I do think that there is something better. So I feel like what we're going to do now is even more tightened. And, you know, there's like these levels to learning. You got to throw out versions A and B sometimes or get to the good ones. So I feel like it wasn't in vain. The the planning we did before is not in vain, but it definitely is going to shift. And, and the virtual piece is the biggest game changer for us. And we've learned. I mean, we now started a new program in a new state during COVID. So that taught us some lessons too, right? So like, hey, what can we do? You can do but, uh, Thanks for asking. <laughs> Stay tuned. We'll have our um, control planning support group starting in 2021. It'll be good. <laughs> <laughs> good. I'll, I'll be there. Yeah, great. <laughs> So I have a question for you when you, and I imagine you know this, this scenario I'll describe. So a lot of times somebody's thinking like, maybe I have, maybe something's wrong. I don't know if I have an eating disorder. Maybe I just have some problems with food. Maybe it's no big deal. I'm sure it's no big deal. Maybe it is a big deal. What should I do? Should I call? Should I not? You know, that pacing back and forth on the carpet kind of moment when people are really trying to figure out, do I need this? Should I? Reluctance seeps in all of that. What do you say to that person who's pacing back and forth on that carpet? I mean, I think it's almost that maybe we already know the answer and don't want to admit it to ourselves. So if, we, if we're starting to question, there's probably something worth attending to. And I think a lot of people feel like, oh, I'm not sick enough or other people have it worse or do this and I don't do that. And, you know, it doesn't matter if, if any behavior is worrisome, if anything is keeping you from full and free life and relationship, if... You can't go out to dinner with a friend spontaneously if you feel like these numbers are in your head more than other things all day long, right? With calories or pounds or whatever. I mean, that's, that's enough. That's reason enough to do something. And things don't have to get worse before they get better. Sometimes that's how it works and things do sort of spiral, but we don't have to let things get worse. It's okay to just call somebody, talk to somebody. And there's amazing professionals in the world that can help you navigate that. So just if anyone listening is kind of in that place, like just call somebody, reach out to somebody and really an eating disorder expert. I always recommend that because again, the diet culture, right? A lot of really well-intentioned people just aren't quite the right fit to help you navigate your relationship with food and body image. So I would really recommend looking for someone who specializes in this area, but yeah, don't wait. There's no, there's no reason to wait. And just freedom is, is really great and really possible. So 
Absolutely. I think, I think we need to keep saying that. And I know that, that many of us who, you know, heard that at some point before we were really starting on the path to recovery thought like, no, that's, that's fine and well for you, but that's not going to work for me. And, and I think that echoing the, like, it can be better. It absolutely can be better and make the call. Don't wait. There's no sense waiting. It's just going to take more of your life. Yeah. And I, we get to be, I remember being so annoyed by like this chirpy, lovely British woman being like, it's possible. I'm like, listen, sister, you don't know my life. Like you don't understand. Right. And now I'm like, I get to be that annoying chirpy person being like, it's possible guys. So that could be you next whoever's listening. Right. Like you too could be that annoying person one day telling people that it's possible because it, it really, it really is. It really, it's really worth it. That's fantastic. That is a goal. Be that annoying chirpy person. I love it. I totally support that goal. <laughs> that is a, a way better place in life. So where can people learn more about Rock? The help it offers, way to get involved. Tell us all the places you are. Oh, the internet, right? Oh, all over the internet. So social media on Facebook, I think we're Rock Recovery ED. And then on Twitter and Instagram, just Rock Recovery. And then our website is www.rockrecoveryed.org. ED really throws you off sometimes, but yeah, that's our website. And then just would love to stay in touch, support anyone, however anyone needs some support. We're definitely here and we want to help more people find freedom. Awesome. Well, Christy, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. It was such a delight to talk to you and to think about the, the future together for a little bit of time and think about all the wonderful things that will happen. So we're so glad you could spend some time with us today. Yes. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. This was a joy. You're welcome. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, rate, or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you'd like to learn more about the Emily Program and what we do, visit emilyprogram.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at Emily Program. Peace Meal is produced by Angie Mitchell and Nancy Linden with music by Dan Forkey. Thanks for listening.